It's Robert M. Price, your friendly neighborhood Bible geek. geek, 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 geek. No, no. That is a kind of allegorical. Yes, it's that pesky Bible geek, Robert M. Price. And I'm back with a bunch of good questions. Thanks to you. Keep them coming. Uh, and uh, we've got uh, oh uh, some real goodies from our buddy Luther, not not Lex Luther. That's spelled with an O. Uh, this is spelled with an E. And uh, let's start out with one of them. I've got two questions for you. Mark 9, 42 through 50, starts off with Jesus' advice to dismember and disfigure oneself to avoid hell. He does, You know, the thing about your hand offends you, cut it off, your foot, your eye, and so on. Uh, he doesn't contrast it with heaven. Uh, several of the examples seem to say it is better to live without a hand, etc., than to go to hell with two hands or feet or whatever. Then for the final I example, he says it is better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than be in hell with uh, am I right in thinking that while hell might have been seen as an afterlife of sorts, he isn't really saying anything about heaven or an afterlife? Is he contrasting living, uh, maybe eternally, uh, in the kingdom of God here on earth, but still living with an eternity in hell? Uh, the contrast, right, with uh, life in one sense or another versus uh, going to hell. Uh, and do we know what the author would have meant by hell at that uh, particular time and place? Uh, well, I think uh, hell there uh, is, is Gehenna, to, better than uh, better to chop off that hand, amputate that foot, gouge out that eye, uh, than uh, than arriving physically sound, but in the Gehenna of fire. Uh, and that certainly does uh, mean uh, a fiery afterlife. Whether uh, eternal or not uh, doesn't say, right? Because uh, the uh, Gospels are ambiguous on that. The... Um, Depending on how you interpret a couple of verses, Matthew makes it pretty clear by implication that uh, the uh, the torment of hell is eternal because the fire is eternal, which seemed, according to him, right, uh, the eternal, enter into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why is it eternal if it's not going to be uh, needed for eternity, right? That implies uh, you're, uh, if you go there, you're going to be uh, in the hot seat forever, but uh, depending on how you interpret the statement about settling with your accuser on the way to court, that is before the actual trial, uh, because if you don't, it might go against you and you'd be uh, tossed into the slammer until you had paid the whole amount, which which I think implies the danger is going to debtor's prison, uh, and uh, you'd be let out as soon as your uh, relatives paid the whole debt, but uh, they ain't letting you go until that happens. Does that, now is that just wise advice, uh, or um, is it, 
actually a forecast what's going to happen if you don't repent and get right with the divine judge before it's too late because uh, if you don't you could wind up in hell for as long as it took to work off the uh, sentence uh, you know how how could you do that? Well, the suffering, uh, taking it out of your hide. That's exactly the way it is in Hindu and Buddhist hells. You're there for a darn long time, but there is a finite limit to it. We we don't know. I mean, I'm not sure you can really say uh, what the Gospels uh, individually or as a whole think about that. But there is also the ambiguity you're pointing out with. Uh, with life, uh, better to enter into life uh, with uh, one foot hopping into life or whatever. Um, what does that mean? Face the rest of your life grossly inconvenienced by the extreme measures you took? Um, it could, I guess, but uh, I tend to think that they mean eternal life. And as you point out, the third example about the eye, that does say the kingdom of God. Now, that could mean the same thing if you uh, figure that the passage means to say, well, to teach realized eschatology. Right? And uh, that's not clear. If the kingdom of God is uh, here and now, uh, that, uh, I think, is very often read into kingdom of God statements. So I tend to think that does mean an afterlife. The the problem is complicated even more because uh, of the um, the question of uh, what does it have to do with the Isaiah quote, the third Isaiah quote or second Isaiah, whatever you however you slice the pie, uh, the business about um, you won't. Well, the, the uh, that's where the 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 fire is never put out and the uh, the maggots never die. Uh, what what is uh, that's not original to uh, to the evangelist, and um, so uh, is, what is the function of a quote like that? Uh, is it just sort of an ornament or an allusion, or is it an integral part of uh, what's being warned against? Tough to say. Uh, second question, then toward the end of the aforementioned verses, he says in the New International Version, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Uh, I'm confused. Uh, what is he talking about Everyone will be salted with fire and salt, um, parenthesis fire, a symbol for fire, is good, but if it loses its saltiness and fieriness, how can you make it salty or fiery again? So have salt or fire in yourselves and be at peace. Is this fire, the fire of hell carrying over from the earlier verses in this speech, or the fire of the Spirit? Uh, that's sort of an alien concept in, in the Gospels. Uh, the latter makes more sense, but uh, seems entirely out of place at the end of the Taliban-like bits that preceded it. You know, the old hands-off policy. Um... Let me uh, 
give what I think is a pretty good answer and not mine originally, of course. What does this weird-sounding verse 49 mean? Um, uh, This is one of those places where it would really come in handy if we could sniff out an underlying Aramaic original. Whether you think of Jesus speaking Aramaic or as Charles Cutler Torrey argued that the original gospel text was in Aramaic, but whatever you prefer... Uh, it's pretty likely that Jesus wouldn't be speaking Greek. Uh, And uh, so you can look for an Aramaic um, hypothetical original, which Tori does in many, many cases, not all of them that uh, important. But here is one of the really interesting ones where he says that um, the Aramaic term that must have underlay this Greek phrase uh, could also be translated, and in context probably should be translated differently, anything spoiling is salt. Uh, now that's interesting, right? Uh, that uh, is, uh, it's sort of superfluous, right? Um, but, uh, well, yeah, obviously, that's why we... we uh, Salted. I am reminded of a Seinfeld episode where Frank Costanza is talking about his experience in the Korean War and says that he uh, got a good bunch of uh, beef from uh, the the military uh, resources, whatever it was, and uh, but it was just a little bit past its prime. But uh, boy, what a temptation. Everybody would really like it if he could do something with it, and so he decided to uh, cover the uh, slight taint of foulness by putting a whole lot of spices on it, but it uh, didn't work, right? Everybody wound up uh, puking it. Uh, and uh, so, uh, yeah, would, would the salt, is it, is it too late once it starts to spoil, or is it the old Frank Costanza strategy? I don't know, but it makes more sense, at least. You, you still have to ask, well, what is the implied reference of it? Is this a figure of speech for something? Uh, well, yeah, we'd still have to debate that, but it sure makes more sense than everyone will be salted with fire. Seasoned with fire? What the heck? Uh, again, uh, Tory's suggestion makes a lot more sense. There's another one of those, by the way, in the uh, Mark and story of the anointing at Bethany. They're in the house of Simon the leper. Uh, they're they're going to visit a leper. You, you know, you, you couldn't really do that, right? Uh, you, you were uh, really a pariah until you got rid of your leprosy, which in the New Testament really denotes uh, psoriasis or eczema, not the uh, the leprosy as they depicted in Ben Hur, where your nose is falling off into the soup bowl and that kind of thing. Um, uh, but uh, in any case, you you can't really uh, associate with lepers. You're not supposed to because it could be contagious, they figured anyway. Well, what do you know? Tori says the underlying Aramaic that would have to have been the, the original for this phrase could also be translated differently 
yeah, I don't know how, because I don't know Aramaic, but, you know, it's like uh, homonyms uh, really means something else. Uh, it could uh, just as well be translated, Simon the Jar Merchant. Well, now, what do we then hear in the story? That uh, this woman brought out a jar of ointment. Yeah, 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 I think you see my point. Well, so sometimes it's worth looking for that. And I think uh, I got to go with Tori, unless somebody comes up with something even better. But um, anyway, Luther goes on. The other day I got into a little debate with a friend who, while a fellow atheist, argues that the teachings put in Jesus' mouth are basically what modern minds and ears would overwhelmingly appreciate. Uh, they're universalistic, uh, pacifistic, loving, etc. Um, uh, let's see, more on my hunch and some specific examples in my head than any categorized knowledge. Uh, I said I doubted they were all that positive. Uh, since then, to prove my point or to go down trying, I've begun going through the Gospels carefully in chronological order, documenting the words attributed to Jesus, considering their context, judging them as ethically positive, neutral, or negative, and adding comments as necessary. Uh, very good. I'm glad to hear people doing the homework like that. So I'm still in Mark, but have found... This effort very interesting. It has also raised at least one question I hope you can help me with. In the feeding of the 5,000 and that of the 4,000, do the numbers of loaves at the beginning and afterward mean anything, especially as relates to the disciples and their relative success or importance? I ask because for the first time I noticed that there were five loaves and two fish to start with twelve after every one ate. Then there were seven loaves for the four thousand, with seven basketfuls afterward. Um, five and seven. Mark tells of the calling of the first five disciples, Simon and Andrew, James and John, and Levi. Then there are seven more disciples called, but without any backstories. I always assume when specific numbers are given, they probably mean something. And when they are some of the, and when they are some of the oft-used numbers with many parallels, I think so even more. Is this supposed to be talking about how many converts the first five and then the second seven made or something else? Or am I just losing my mind trying to pay close attention to all the red typeface? You mean Schofield's notes printed in red? Just kidding. Um... Uh, you know, the, there has to be some intended significance that Mark expects the reader to understand. He might as well have said, let the reader understand, as he does in chapter 13, uh, because he expects you to get it, because when the disciples don't, he says, you still don't understand? Because he trots out the numbers. Like, hey, you remember when I fed the 5,000? How many baskets were left over? So on. Hey, you remember when I fed the 4,000? How many did you collect? Uh, Gee, uh, Lord, well, we don't we don't know. Well, what uh, What's the uh, meaning of it? Oh, my God. Um 
uh, what is it? I mean, the reader is left feeling stupid, too. I know I am. Uh, and that's why they call me El Stupido. Uh, I put on my Stupanatron helmet and everything, but it doesn't click. This this is one of those things where we scientific Western rationalists uh, have to admit, you know, we don't take numerology very seriously, but uh, we do know the ancients did. So maybe those nuts we, we despise who make a big deal out of gematria and so on have a point. Maybe we are missing something that uh, the evangelist tried to code into the text. Uh, I mean, here, right, it's practically telling you that's the, the case, and what is it? Hey, boy, I mean, I can tell you one thing that uh, I find a pretty uh, convincing explanation for the point of the feeding stories uh, which are probably ultimately based on the uh, miraculous multiplication of food by the prophet Elisha, uh, but what they mean in a gospel context, I, I uh, kind of like the interpretation that both stories are about uh, the Eucharist, uh, the the um, multiplication of the amount of physical food stands for the uh, the larger spiritual nourishment that comes from eating a small amount of physical food in Holy Communion. Uh, that makes a lot of uh, sense to me. But again, we're just guessing, right? Uh, him who has ears to hear, let him hear. But sometimes it's still tough to avoid the static. So I, what you suggest might well be true, but of course there's a problem in that uh, Levi does not appear in Mark's list of the twelve, so that he doesn't say that Levi is the same as Matthew, as the so-called Gospel of Matthew does. Uh, so that particular reading, that were the the five and the seven refer to the twelve disciples, that might make that problematical. But who the heck knows? Sometimes the best and most cogent uh, suggestion about the meaning of the Bible is that we don't know. Um, you know, there's this anxiety that uh, some of us still have from fundamentalist days when we figured everything in the Bible is there to teach us something, uh, so we have to receive it, which means we have to know, we have to decide what it means, and the best available guess we're entitled to take as the word of God. No, we're not. I mean, even if you believe that the Bible is somehow the word of God, you, you, you don't have the right to pretend you know what you don't know. My gosh, come on. Okay, uh, let's see. Yeah, so Luther, keep up the good work. Maybe you can make this into a dissertation sometime. Now, this is from Nick, who specifies he is not very old and definitely not a saint, but it remains possible, though he doesn't say that he's wearing an eye patch. Anyway, greetings, O thrice greatest geek. May your days last in happiness. Uh, recently, it occurred to me that the apocryphal Gospel of Peter has some strangely close parallels with the Sumerian myth of Inanna in the underworld. 
not the underwear, now the, in the, the goddess in the underworld. Uh, in the Sumerian mythos, the goddess Inanna is often depicted trying to take over other gods' domains. The myth of Inanna in the underworld tells the story of one such attempt. Inanna descends into the underworld, a shadowy dwelling of souls very similar to the Hebrew Sheol or the Greek Hades, aiming to wrestle it away from her older sister, Ereshkigal. I've always thought that's a strangely beautiful name. Uh, but plans go awry. Inanna is captured, tried by the seven judges of the underworld, uh, the, the Anunnaki, I think they are. Uh, found guilty of hubris and killed by a death spell. Her body is nailed upside down to some sort of wooden implement to remain on display as a warning to would-be trespassers. <laughs> Yikes. Um, yeah, nail some sense into him, I say. Uh, Inanna's second-in-command, the goddess Nishibur, immediately sets out to get a divine pardon for her boss. Uh, for three days, she goes from one supreme god to another, trying to secure a resurrection order for Inanna. Everyone she speaks to turns her down, so she keeps moving up the divine ladder until she gets a chance to plead with the god Enki, who decides to grant her requests and dispatches two gender angelic beings with a jar of water of life to the underworld. They sprinkle the water of life onto Inanna's lifeless body, and once she is revived, they escort her back into the world of the living. This rings some truly weird bells. In the resurrection scene in the Gospel of Peter, Jesus is led out of the tomb by two angels. Closing the procession is a walking and talking cross. Clearly, the two angels were sprinkling water of life onto the lifeless body of Jesus crucified in the underworld and spilled some of it on the cross, so the cross got revived along with Jesus. But what's even more weird is that it is a gospel of Peter who, according to the church tradition, ended his life crucified upside down. Also, is it possible that in an earlier version of this story, Jesus descended into the underworld to wrestle it away from his older brother? At this point, you know, who, who would be Satan, I guess. At this point, I am so dumbfounded that I don't even know what question to ask, other than would the geek care to comment? Well, only that uh, I have never heard this. I mean, I've read the myth. I've read the Gospel of Peter. It never occurred to me. Uh, I think you got something there. Don't know what yet, but that is a little bit uh, close for comfort, right? Um, we've got, yeah, I mean, you. why just reiterate the, the parallels you pointed out, especially, my gosh, the uh, the explanation for why the cross is speaking—it's—it's uh, it's, uh, become alive because of you know the splashing of the water of life, uh, and 
and the crucified upside down. I mean, how common could that have been? Uh, I uh, would not be surprised. Uh, it, it merits further study. Uh, you may well be right. That seems exceedingly plausible to me. It's just, though, that uh, like when they have supposed archaeological finds, you know, the uh, the ossuary of James or the toothbrush of uh, Arfaxad or something like that, uh, if they can't establish the provenance, you know, the 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 location of the thing when it was found and who had custody of it and all that stuff, uh, then you're not really sure if it's the real thing because there's plenty of uh, funny business these days with people faking uh, relics, etc. Well, the same thing sort of bears on this. If you can't trace how the the posited influence occurred it's less convincing but you know that's just uh, the, the 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 breaks when when all you have is fragments you you try to connect the dots and it remains hypothetical but that doesn't mean it didn't happen right i mean so many of these things are speculative if there are more dots to connect all the better but uh, you may well be right i've seen uh, good theories with less evidence than this to work with keep up the good work i'm telling you you ought to get your Ph.D. You got a couple of good uh, dissertation ideas here. And I have been on dissertation committees, right? So I'm not just bloviating. Uh, let's see here. Uh, this from Luther again. Uh, the preceding... S Whoa, wait a minute. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, I have a question about Matthew 5, 25 through 26. The preceding several verses and a few subsequent ones are basically saying, not only can you not do X, you shouldn't even think about X. But all of a sudden, verses 25 and 26 seem like an interpolated proverb. Their point seems to be more of a first-century version of, hey, resolve your issues quickly or the doggone court system will bleed you dry. Unlike what, pre uh, what precedes and follows, there doesn't seem to be anything especially moral about it, and it doesn't follow the format of avoid sin, yes, but also avoid so-and-so, some particular example. Does this make sense? Do you think I'm right that even if the rest of the speech happened to be from Jesus' lips, which I don't, and I know you don't either, uh, this part certainly wasn't a part of that speech? Yeah, it, it looks like this is um, a cameo of, of what is the case throughout uh, the Gospels, where you have this unevenness, and even conservative um, scholars like F.F. F. Bruce and Bruce Metzger and others uh, um, freely admit that we, we don't have a, uh, well, not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but the whole thing, we, we just, we don't have a continuing flow uh, of stuff spoken on particular occasions. Rather, it's a question of the evangelist just trying to find a place for the various little scraps uh, he has read or heard. And uh, usually Mark 
will uh, just string things together, individual sayings that he had no context for, and uh, they and he decided to do it topically. I don't know if this is even in print anymore, probably is, but there was a thing called Nave, N-A-V-E, Nave's Topical Bible, where they organized it according to topic, obviously, right? And uh, divorce, okay, here's every Bible verse that relates to that. You you make of them what you will. Um, adultery, uh, poverty, uh, salvation, whatever, they'll they'll provide uh, all the, the verses, admittedly out of context, right? But they're saying, yeah, this might be a handy tool, and indeed it is. I don't happen to have one, but I think it is a good idea. Well, that's kind of what Mark did in that earlier bunch of verses you you were pointing out. That's fire, the salt, etc. There's other ones too. Children, the name, etc. That whole sequence is linked together by what are called catchwords. There's no particular train of thought. It's just that, well, let's put all these things together. And sometimes the items that have been soldered together contradict one another, which really makes it clear that this is what's going on. Like one of the weirdest examples is uh, uh, on the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, the disciples have just seen Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And uh, Mo and Elijah depart into a cloud and Jesus is going back down the mountain with him and they say gee then why do uh, the scribes say that Elijah must come first that is before the Messiah uh, and uh, Jesus says well if you're willing to accept it he did but you knew him as John the Baptist oh wait a minute how can it be problematical uh, that the scribes say Elijah is the forerunner of the Messiah, uh, and and that didn't happen. What do we do with that? How could you say that if you just saw Elijah? Uh, of course, uh, you know how would they even have known it was Elijah? <laughs> I guess he was wearing a name tag. You know, hello, my name is Elijah. And uh, of course, it's always possible that uh, it was in Greek and they only spoke Aramaic, so they didn't know it was. Oh, but no, it can't be because Peter says, you know, let's make three uh, tents: one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Sorry. Um. Well, uh, what happened is that Mark had two apologetics excuses for Jesus being the Messiah without a public appearance of Elijah, and it was widely believed Elijah was the forerunner, so where the heck was he? Well, some said, oh, uh, it was, yeah, it was John the Baptist, that's a ticket, it wasn't a literal fulfillment. Others said, wait a minute, it's very much like how Reverend Moon would say that uh, the second coming uh, of Jesus wasn't really the same guy supposed to come. It was somebody else who would fulfill the task of the original Jesus, and that's him. Uh, well, I'd say that I always thought that he had every right to, to appeal to that uh, precedent with John the Baptist being the 
fulfillment of the Elijah prediction. Well, but but uh, people were skeptical when uh, Reverend Moon used to say that, and that's pretty darn understandable, right? Uh, well, people must have been skeptical. To, well, John the Baptist, you're saying he was Elijah? No, come on. Uh, you're just making it up. The fact that they frequently use the term, uh, verily, that's the ticket, uh, probably uh, gave rise to some of this cynicism. But uh, people weren't buying it, and so somebody else said, well, uh, how about this? Elijah did actually show up in person, name tag and all, but I'm afraid you weren't there to see it. You know, it wasn't publicly advertised, so people didn't know, and they didn't come and see him. Uh, guess you had to be there. Yeah, uh, okay, uh, that one may not have made any sense either, who knows? But Marcus put them together even though they contradict one another, and that's not the only time. But that really shows, yeah, these things were um, uh, combined after the fact. Why would it interrupt the original uh statements, the original sequence of statements. Well, sometimes you find that elsewhere in the Bible where the point is simply to say, yeah, interpret this one in light of that, like the old Mark and Sandwich technique. Uh, It seemed not to occur to the uh, to the uh, redactor, the editor, that the one would, by interrupting the other, would make it difficult to understand the original. Uh, they just wanted to make sure that they were now in the same pericope for the sake of being read aloud. They wanted to be sure that if you read the one, you read the other, so they stuck it like a dart in the middle of the target. Uh, that's my guess. I mean, you see that in the uh, in Genesis 6, where you got the thing about the sons of God uh, whooping it up, or the daughters of men. Right in the middle of it, it said that God uh, decided that nobody would live longer than uh, 120 years. Uh, what? What does that have to do with it? Well, uh, he's trying to give you the idea that the uh, interbreeding of the heavenly and earthly species uh, led to these long lifespans, but it petered out. Um, so on then there are plenty of other examples. Okay. Um... Yeah, okay, thank you, Luther. Uh, Now, is this another one of his? Uh, Looks like the same. Yes, I believe it is. Okay, uh, I've been engaging with an apologist regarding the gospel source materials and was hoping I could get your thoughts on his claims. Now, why do you have the word thoughts in quote marks? No, he didn't. I'm just kidding. Uh, Here is his last correspondence. Any help will be greatly appreciated. Uh, Okay, Mark, uh, Mario Quadracci, I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, He says, actually, we do have at least four independent accounts. We have Mark, which Matthew and Luke borrowed from. Then, if you believe the twin source theory, we also have Q, which, again, uh, both Matthew and Luke borrowed from. Then we have some unique material that Matthew used that wasn't in Mark or Q, and uh, other unique material which Luke used which wasn't in Mark or Q. Then you have to ask, what were the sources for Mark and Q and independent uh, 
Matthew and Luke, or M and L, as source critics say. Uh, tradition tells us that Mark's source was Peter, so if that's right, then let's assume a single source for Mark. Uh, it's hard to say for Q because we can only piece it together from the intersection of Matthew and Luke, not Mark. There is internal evidence in Luke that he used multiple sources to piece together his narrative. Some of the people he names, for instance, like probably in Acts or maybe Simeon and Anna and so on. Uh, hence, four is a minimum of independent sources. Then there is the non-canonical Gospel of Thomas, which most Christians disregard because it's not in the Bible, but contains some material purported to be sayings of Jesus. There are some resemblances to sayings recorded in the Gospels, but often with peculiar differences. Oh, and that's just the synoptic Gospels. We haven't mentioned John's Gospel. Whilst some of the events recorded are the same as in the synoptic Gospels, the way he tells them and the way he structures the Gospel is so different that some scholars wonder if he even had the synoptic Gospels available to him. Um, A.M. Hunter basing his um, theories on the work of C.H. Dodd um, said that. Okay, so that's at least five independent sources, maybe six. As far as, quote, legendary development, unquote, is concerned, have you ever compared the synoptic gospels side by side? In some cases, Matthew and Luke add details not in Mark, but in other cases, they abbreviate Mark's accounts, not with any obvious legend-building motifs. Uh, I'm sorry, motives. It's easy to make trite comments about copying and so on and lack of independence, but when you look closely at the evidence, it just doesn't stack up. Uh, now, I follow until this last uh, paragraph. Uh, is uh, Mario saying that perhaps the source theories are full of baloney and that uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are actually independent? I I'm not sure. Uh, I can't quite tell there. Uh, but, you, I mean, if you compare them, you do see legendary embellishment, especially from Mark to Matthew. Uh, you have, uh, like in the, the Bethany uh, anointing scene, there's development um, from uh, on the topic of who it was that started grousing about the waste of the ointment. Some present in Mark, I think Matthew has the disciples, and then John has Judas Iscariot, everybody's favorite villain. Uh, you have, uh, uh, with uh, the crucifixion, in the synoptics, Simon of Cyrene is uh, commandeered, uh, yanked out of the crowd and forced to carry Jesus' cross. But in John, it's Jesus who does it, and it seems like uh, the point is that um, Jesus bears his own cross, and that's implied when it says, take up your cross and follow me. So uh, that may have uh, changed. Judas's role, uh, his uh, action is unmotivated in Mark, uh, but um, later we find uh, he did it because he was possessed by Satan. 
uh, and or that he was just a crook embezzling from the common fund uh, and uh, ran out of bucks, so he decided to sell out Jesus uh, to, to line his pockets. That certainly seems a literary embellishment. And uh, or the the biggest whopper of them all. Uh, what happened at the crucifixion? Well, there's the uh, darkness for three hours. That's already a kind of a divine sign uh, in in Mark. But then uh, and the tearing of the temple curtain. But that's not good enough for Matthew, right? Because he has earthquakes and night of the living dead. You know what is happening here? Uh, or uh, the uh, the empty tomb. There are no resurrection appearances in Mark, um, and the other three Gospels do have them, and they don't agree with one another, and it certainly seems like people are trying their best to fill in the blank using their imagination. Uh, and uh, the fact that there's no miraculous birth narrative in Mark, well, you have two, and they're very different between Matthew and Luke. That kind of strikes me as a legendary embellishment. In Mark, uh, when Jesus is baptized, he hears the heavenly voice and sees the dove, but in, um, in Matthew, everybody sees and hears it, and so on. So it's, it seems to me when you... Uh, compare them, you, you do see elaboration. Okay, uh, the, uh, oh, well, another great one in Matthew, Jesus walks on water as he does in, uh, in uh, John also, the story's missing in Luke, uh, but in Matthew, it's, I'm sorry, Mark has him walk on the water, uh, John has him walk on the water, Matthew has, uh, Jesus walk on the water and Peter walk on the water. What did the other guys just decide to skip that? No, it has to do with church politics. You're trying to put Jesus up there, uh, uh, Peter up there with Jesus and so on, which also probably accounts for the crucifixion of Peter. You know, you want to make him a kind of second Christ. Okay, what about the independent sources business? Uh, there is a, uh, for, for one reason, there's no particular reason to take Papias seriously. The one that says that, uh, the first one to say that Mark was uh, just taking notes while Peter reminisced about the good old days with Jesus. And uh, then he wrote it up as a narrative. Mark did. That's repeated by Clement of Alexandria and various others, but seems to come from the Papias thing. Papias, th there's no reason to, to think he knew what he was talking about because the some of the other tidbits of apostolic uh, gossip he provides are, are absurd and uh, and like the thing with Judas Iscariot exploding as he does uh, in Acts, uh, but uh, dressing it up to cartoonish proportions where he his head swells up like a parade balloon uh, and, and so forth. And he's urinating maggots and all this disgusting uh, boo hiss at Judas stuff. Um, he, obviously, he didn't uh, have uh, I mean, let's say his reliability as a witness of genuine apostolic oral tradition is shot. He's forfeited it. And uh, uh, so I, I would dismiss that as uh, as a way of characterizing uh, Mark's originality or accuracy or anything. 
an attempt to make Q apostolic uh, is found in F.F. Bruce and others, where they say that, uh, well, Papias said that Matthew compiled the oracles of the Lord. Um, just sayings, wouldn't that imply? Well, maybe that's Q. Q's uh, mainly a list of sayings. Uh, maybe that was Matthew's work. So that's just a, a way of uh, trying to root the anonymous source into uh, the apostles and uh, the sacred founders of the church and all that. It's, I mean, it's remotely possible, but just seems like a guess and a tendentious one at that. But the uh, the problem with this is that a, that it seems to me one cannot invoke this as evidence as as Bart does. I mean, there there's certainly competent scholars that think this, and he's one of them. But I can't buy it because it's a different sort of a theory. the The source theory business. It's a question of competing paradigms for trying to understand certain phenomena comparing one gospel to another. Uh, and depending on which phenomena of the text you uh, zero in on, you come up with different ways of slicing the pie. The two-source theory with Mark and Q, both used independently by both Matthew and Luke, right? I tend to favor that one. But there are plenty of people who are enthused about the possibility that Mark was first, Matthew used Mark, and then Luke used both of them, and that explains all the overlaps without positing Q. Others say Luke used Mark, Matthew used both Mark and Luke, uh, and that would explain it. Then there are others that say, um, no, Matthew and Luke, wherever they came from, they were probably independent. And Mark fused the two of them together, cutting out the stuff they didn't agree on. And uh, these things, it's not like there are copies of Q or M or L or any of that stuff or proto-Mark. I wish there were, right? But uh, we ain't got them. Uh, and so this has to remain a, a question of how you slice the pie of the texts you have. And uh, that seems to me, uh, it's like not, it can't function as evidence for how many sources we have, because the logic of that argument is, look, here are these different sources there's got to be a historical Jesus at the root of this. What were they all just making it up separately? Uh, I don't think that's legitimate. Uh, you, you've, and it's a case of the larger problem of citing as evidence something that is in dispute in its own right. You're just building a chain of weak links that way. So that's what I think of that. Uh, again, there are plenty of scholars that view it this way, but this is why I don't. Uh, let's see, okay. Uh, this from uh, another frequent, uh, happily frequent contributor to the Bible Geek Questions, the Rain Barrel, Charles Power. Uh, let's see, there's a skeptical argument, which I don't recall seeing anywhere, but which seems pretty obvious 
Believers argue that there is plenty of evidence for Jesus considering that there are four lengthy, obviously this is going to be kind of like the one we just did, there are four lengthy uh, for the time biographical works plus various things in Paul's letters. Um, I take note that all of these are in Greek, directed toward Greek speakers, and that Christianity seems to have blossomed away from Jerusalem. Josephus doesn't even mention the Jesus followers playing any role in the rebellion and fall of Jerusalem. There seems to have been a relatively small group in Jerusalem to whom Paul felt some obligation of charity or franchise payment. Yeah, I think you got that right. Uh, but the enthusiasm for the new religion seems to have picked up remarkably the further away one got from those who supposedly witnessed Jesus' wisdom and miracles firsthand. Christian apologists sometimes argue that Corinthian and Galatian and other Christians uh, could easily have checked the facts with their pals in Jerusalem, perhaps using Google or email, or if they were technologically challenged, checking the stacks of the Jerusalem Post at the local library. But even if this were not an absurd fantasy, it would have been much easier for those living in Jerusalem to check the facts, so why didn't Jerusalem play a bigger role in the growth of Christianity? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a real good one. In, I think, the very first issue of the Journal of Higher Criticism back in 1994, we had a really interesting article by Merrill Miller uh, where he said... If if um, the Jerusalem church was what it's supposed to be, uh, we got some big questions to answer. Why, if, if Jesus were crucified as a ringleader of seditionists, was, as far as we hear, no attempt made to round up his lieutenants? In fact, in, in Acts, I'm sure you remember, it says that in the subsequent, uh, in the persecution of the Hellenistic Christians like Stephen, following Stephen's martyrdom, uh, the, uh, the Greek-speaking Christians were scattered, but the apostles remained in Jerusalem unmolested. Now, how could that be? Uh, it, it just seems like something is is really wrong there, uh, and especially since we have uh, these guys publicly rebuking the authorities, saying, "Hey, you murdered God's anointed." They're going to get away with that. Well, of course, uh, it says in Acts that the Sanhedrin had him arrested a couple of times, but why? It says they didn't want them spreading the the doctrine, which the Sadducees rejected, of resurrection in general. What? It, it just seems so bizarre. Uh, and uh, so, of course, another problem is, as uh, David Oliver Smith suggested, and I think the most recent issue of the Journal of Higher Criticism, that there may have been very little in common between uh, Pauline Christianity and Jerusalem Christianity, despite the franchise payment, uh, the tribute money, and uh, that, that they may have had totally different Christologies. And if you did check with Jerusalem to say, is Paul on the level about this Jesus stuff? 
they'd have said no, uh, and we wouldn't be hearing about it. Uh, but yeah, I think there that is a major problem. Um, notice when Paul does, or whoever, does once say, if you don't believe me, you can check. At least that's the implication, I think. In 1 Corinthians 15, he said uh, he appeared to over 500 of the brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, which again implies, you know, if you don't believe me, ask them, uh, who are these guys and where are they? Right? There's no no information supplied as to who you could even write a letter to. Uh, and so it's it sounds like puffery to me. Of course, I think that's an interpolation into it anyway. It's uh, based, I think, on one of the versions of the uh, Acts of Pilate, where we hear that um, the soldiers who were present at the tomb when Jesus rose and uh, fainted from shock and awe, uh, were they? They went up to Galilee and saw Jesus ascend into heaven, and there were five hundred of these soldiers. That may seem a little ridiculous, and indeed it is. But the gospel writers didn't necessarily think so, because they've got hundreds of soldiers present to arrest Jesus, uh, and and so on a cohort, and so forth. Okay, um, uh, one one last thing. A, a, a less critical approach to this might be to say that the Jerusalem church pretty much perished in uh, the, the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70, uh, and that its influence was uh, sort of gone after that. Uh, and and the war would have killed any uh, any eyewitnesses, given the huge numbers that were killed. That might have been it for the, any any uh, Galilean Christians who could have shared uh, any memories. Luther again can't stop this guy, and I for one wouldn't want to. Um, I can't wait to hear what he more what he comes up with in his own research. He says. I'm still working through Bruce Metzger's The Canon of the New Testament, and as he discusses how the New Testament came together, a question occurred to me about the Old Testament. When did the idea of a canonical Bible occur to people? I know the Septuagint predates Christianity by a couple of hundred years, but was it thought of in a similar way? Um to Christians' conception as the definitive authoritative collection of books to compose a Bible, quote-unquote, did such an idea exist prior to the Septuagint, or was it thought of more as an evolving collection? Well, there is evidence, not a whole lot of it, but it seems pretty strong, that uh, as of the council at or the synod of Yavna, the non-political uh, Sanhedrin um, in the 80s and 90s, also called uh, Jamnia, uh, I guess Latinizing it. This was like the council of uh, Jews after the the defeat by the Romans, and they were 
allowed to do their work by Rome, but their the scope of their work was restricted to legal matters. And it's often said that this was really the bulwark of uh, formative Judaism. Uh, this was where and by whom the uh, you began to have the rabbinic tradition solidified. Apparently, they there was questioning there about certain books as to whether they should remain in the canon. Some people thought Esther was dubious because God is only mentioned in the longer Greek version, and these guys were not big on the Septuagint, these Palestinian rabbis. Some thought Ezekiel might be written off as a false prophecy because it sounded like it predicted the uh, construction of a post-exilic temple with an intricate blueprint that, however, was not used. So maybe a false prophecy or just a guy's ideas. Uh, some thought that uh, Ecclesiastes shouldn't be in there for obvious reasons, because it's uh, sort of nihilistic, even with the interpolations in it that try to domesticate it. And uh, even today, some fundamentalists resort to the desperate expedient of saying that Ecclesiastes is divinely inspired, but only as, an, as a warning. Men, don't let this happen to you. Like, and this is the worldly mind. This is your mind on worldliness. Uh, don't think this way. That, that's really desperate, right? Uh, I mean, if you wanted to, to do that, you could say that uh, the, uh, the Satanic Bible is divinely inspired, uh, saying, look, do you, do you want to be like this? That's no, no clue in the text that that's the case, right? Okay, uh, and uh, I think, yeah, yeah, the, uh, yeah the, the Song of Solomon was doubted by some because, what the heck, it's just a nearly pornographic uh, bunch of love songs and uh, actually it was uh, l surviving liturgy from the cult of Tammuz uh, but uh, so there's plenty of reason to wonder about this but no they said no this in fact is the holiest of all texts because it's really about uh, the love of God for uh, Israel yeah yeah that's a ticket and uh but the the fact that I think apologists for the canon are correct. This attests the possibility of revising a canon that was already in use. Uh, but in fact, if they uh, even these books doubted by some made it in, or, or I'm sorry, had made it in and remained in. Now, of course, there were plenty of other books that were revered by uh, other Jewish groups, uh, the uh, the Book of Enoch, the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, the Book of Jubilees, and all manner of other ones found at Qumran and other places, and that 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 was those Jews seem to have believed in an open, ongoing canon, but the the Jews whose faction lasted. Uh, they um, they had uh, excluded books. Now, when did that happen? I uh, think that actually the canonization was um, a function of the, uh, the the Septuagint 
and that it did not long follow that of the 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 Hebrew Tanakh, the the Hebrew Bible that we still have today. Uh, this um, oh, what is his name? I can't believe uh, the guy that wrote was um, it Barosis and Genesis, Manetho and Exodus. He and uh, uh, Niels Peter Lemke both think the, uh, the the Old Testament was very late, not much er- earlier than the New Testament, and they uh, at least uh, oh I can't think of a thing that begins with a G, but it's uh, not coming up. Um, that uh, they they accept the conventional date of the Septuagint in the third century, that is the 200s BCE. That uh, I think it's Ptolemy the third had the already existing Hebrew Bible translated into Greek for his great library. Um, but uh, the argument offered for that seems to me very bizarre and far-fetched, and uh, I think it was. I, I think that the uh, the uh, canon was and the Septuagint were created in Hasmonean times, uh, and uh, some stuff was added later, like the books of the Maccabees, for instance. Uh, so that's I get into that in Holy Fable, Volume One. It, well, some people point to Luke twenty-four as a um, as a possible indicator that the canon was still open in uh, Jesus' day or Luke's day, because he says all the things written about me in the Law and the Prophets and the Psalms had to be fulfilled. Does that do the Psalms stand for the whole section of what would be come to be known as the writings, which would include Job, Chronicles, Daniel, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, etc.? Not unlikely, uh, but uh, if it doesn't, does that imply that the Psalms were the only? Uh, um, contents of a third section it was long enough it wouldn't seem that odd uh, in the Quran it speaks of uh, of course this is hundreds of years later of uh, uh, the uh, the law the gospel and the Psalms uh, I, I don't think the Bible existed in Arabic at the time and uh, so uh, you know they couldn't they, they're probably not referring to a Bible they could consult um, but this is up for grabs, really. And, uh, so depending on who you listen to, it was an open canon and could be uh, elaborated, but uh, others said no. Okay, here's a follow-up, a slightly later question from Luther. I just finished Bruce Metzger's The Canon of the New Testament and had a sort of hybrid question or thought regarding a point made in Chapter 7, Part 2, is the canon open or closed? Metzger uses the hypothetical of a newly discovered, seemingly genuine epistle of Paul to discuss the issue. 
His first point is that simply being the work of Paul is not sufficient for inclusion. For example, an epistle on on tent making, even if by Paul, has no place in the Bible. His second point is that the church, uh, uh, quote, the church would still need to consider whether its contents added anything essentially new to what is available in the Pauline epistles already generally received. Page 272. First a question, then a comment. One, do all of the canonical Pauline epistles actually add anything essentially new? If not, by this logic, oughtn't some of them have been left out but were included because they were purportedly by Paul? Yeah, you're uh, you're, uh, opening the canon simply by asking Metzger's question, it seems to me, uh, because the criticism of the canon that Schleiermacher said ought to be Open. We should uh, reevaluate what is canonical and what is not. And uh, I did a chapter on that in a collection of essays by uh, about Schleiermacher, uh, where I said that um, had Schleiermacher known of the Gospel of Thomas, he would certainly have said it should be added to the New Testament. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I think that uh, this. This is similar to the claim of Hans Kung and, and uh, James Barr and others that who, who felt uh, hesitant to say, well, it was God's will that they pick the ones that uh, that uh, are in the canon. And they said, now nah, let's have a more historically realistic one. And they said, these books are canonical because they represent the earliest witnesses to Christ. These are the earliest Christians. This is as far back as we can go. That seems pretty dubious for the same reason. Like, well, these guys know that the uh, the traditional ascription of the New Testament books to apostles and their sidekicks is uh, really almost useless today, since there's room for doubt on all of these uh, authorship ascriptions. So you're really asking for trouble there, as indeed they were. Uh, you can't be sure, so if a literal apostolic origin is necessary to be canonical, nothing's canonical anymore, or things are only probably canonical. You don't want to go that route if you want to use the Bible as an authority. The same thing is true of Metzger's suggestion. Uh, If it's original or not, uh, does it uh, add anything uh, that's uh, suppose it added something that cast doubt on traditional orthodoxy. For that reason alone, it would be kicked out, right? They they just it, it betokens a pre-critical attitude toward this, uh, even among critical scholars that say this is the earliest. Well, that's dubious too because. It begs the question of whether there were earlier ones that were suppressed, and we know there were later ones that were, and then again, it's difficult to be sure about the dating of uh, Thomas or uh, Mark and Luke, right? It's, oh boy, what a mess. Yeah, the second qualification seems to me to be, if not in bad faith, maybe somewhat naive. 
if a newly discovered, seemingly authentic Pauline epistle added something essentially new, isn't it most likely that the Church would dispute its authenticity largely on those grounds? I'm sorry, yeah, Luther, I jumped the gun. That's what I was just talking about. I agree with you. Uh, it seems they would simply say it couldn't be authentic because it didn't coincide with Orthodox Christian teachings because the new material would either contradict existing material or simply go beyond it somehow. Verily I say unto you, there are four persons in the Trinity. Yeah, no thanks, Paul. Uh, after all, another criterion for canonicity seems to have been a book's general agreement with the other canonical books. And just on a human level, there's no way the Church would acknowledge a couple of thousand years of accidentally faulty teaching based on incomplete information. No real question here, but if you think I'm mistaken or have a comment, I'd like to hear your thoughts. You already gave the comment. I'm sorry I stole your thunder there. Yeah, I, this is like the old uh, Muslim saying you don't need any other book than the Quran, because if, if a book agrees with the Quran, it's it's redundant and superfluous, and if it doesn't agree with the Quran, it's got to be wrong. Uh, that really is, I think, uh, the way people view the Bible. Uh, they're not going to... Like, if, if uh, Protestants... Suppose they discovered a missing chapter of the Acts of the Apostles or something, that recorded the bodily assumption of Mary into heaven, which Catholics believe, but Protestants don't. Would Protestants say, okay, you know, now it's biblical, so we're going to believe in the bodily assumption of Mary, the presumptuous assumption? Um, no, they'd never do that, and for the reason you cite. And this reflects the fact that the claims of apostolic authorship in the early church, and the rejection of some such claims as, as false and heretical, really were simply functions of the perceived conformity of a writing to the already formed creed or its failure to comport with it. Uh, if it says it's the Gospel of Matthew, and eh, sounds pretty good to us, um, okay, he, Matthew wrote it. If it's uh, the the Gospel of Peter, and it seems to be docetic, uh, nah, no thanks. And they had no way of knowing who wrote these things, so it was simply the content. Did it agree with church tradition, a.k.a. church creeds? Yeah. Uh, here's one more from Charles Power. I think the only direct evidence of the resurrected Jesus in the New Testament is Paul's statement that he saw him following the story of 500 witnesses and various others in 1 Corinthians 15. This is a bit confusing, though, if we accept the account in Acts where it seems that a spirit Jesus manifests himself as a light and a voice, but does not appear as an ex-cadaver with holes in his hands. Uh, is there any reconciliation of the Corinthian statement which appears to refer to a bodily resurrected Jesus and the Acts story which does not? Any reconciliation? Uh, no, I don't think so. And the, the, the place I would point out the contradiction is between Luke 24 and a bit later in 1 Corinthians 15, 
because uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, generally thought to be earlier than Luke, I, I don't know if there's any way to know that. It depends on who wrote what. Uh, it says that uh, flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, and uh, and then it goes into the different kinds of bodies and sown a uh, natural body and raised a spiritual body and all that. Uh, it says that um, the last Adam, Jesus, uh, became a life-giving spirit. Uh, and... Uh, those who believe in him will, you know, be transformed the same way. Okay, that's the 1 Corinthians 15 view of the resurrected Jesus by inevitable implication, inevitable inference, maybe. Um, one has to say that this writer thought the resurrected Jesus was a spirit, possessing a spirit body, whatever that is, but it didn't have flesh and blood, right? Okay, First um, Corinthians, I'm sorry, uh, Luke 24, uh, they thought they were seeing a spirit when Jesus appeared, and he says, no, uh, touch me and see that uh, because no spirit has flesh and bones as you see that I have. Uh, so how did Luke view the resurrected Jesus? As having a physical body, a body of flesh, the very thing 1 Corinthians 15 denies. How are you going to reconcile those? Well, the, uh, the way that... Uh, N.T. Wright and all these apologists do, is to basically say that the risen Jesus was uh, like uh, the Vision, one of the Avengers, who is a synthesoid, a kind of an android capable of altering his physical density. Uh, so he can be like a brick wall or a, a puff of smoke. Uh, that's uh, So he has no real physical makeup of his own that's like docetism right uh, if you have no if you can assume any form you don't really have a true form uh, and uh, or like the martian manhunter if you prefer dc comics uh, he can alter his density and become virtually immaterial uh, that's what they say though without the re handy reference to superheroes, that's what these apologists say, that the risen Jesus could solidify, uh, or in which case he would say, you know, touch me and see, uh, as I myself, no spirit has flesh and bone, bones, as you see that, that I have. Or he could uh, uh, dematerialize and walk through locked doors, uh, like Jacob Marley, uh, this this is just bad storytelling. Somebody has uh, combined resurrection stories, some of which had the immaterial Jesus, some of which had the reanimated Jesus. Uh, there is no way to reconcile them without making Jesus into the Martian Manhunter, and it never says that. Right, this combination of those two things is uh, a figment of the apologetic imagination. It's just like uh, what you hear every Good Friday in fundamentalist churches. 
that uh, Jesus uh, began carrying his cross, but he was in such bad shape after having the hell whipped out of him uh, with a cat of nine tails that he simply couldn't bear up under the weight, which is not unreasonable, right? Uh, but he, he was so uh, so beat, he dropped it. And so they grabbed a guy from the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, and had him carry it the rest of the way. Well, again, not implausible. But the thing is, no gospel says this. Uh, and it's not a legitimate inference because, according to the synoptics, this other guy carried the cross most of the way, or the rest of the way, whatever. Um, but uh, in John, it simply says he carried the cross, Jesus carried the cross to Golgotha. Uh, there's, uh, there's no way to get them together, so splitting the difference fails as a harmonization, and this is another one of those. So same thing with uh, the thieves on the cross. Uh, in, in Matthew John and uh, Mark, both the the, the uh, crooks are ridiculing Jesus along with the crowd. But in Luke, one of them is mocking Jesus and the other is not. He takes umbrage and says, why don't you shut up? Give this guy a break. He didn't do anything wrong. He's obviously been framed. You and I, we deserve what we're getting. Uh, it doesn't say what we always hear on Good Friday, that both of the guys were mocking Jesus, and then one of them thought better of it and said, look, I I'm sorry for what I said there, uh, Rabbi. No, there's nothing about that. It just says both of them mocked him. In, in the other Gospels and in Luke, it says the one mocked him, the other didn't. So there are all these harmonizations that we think are in the text, but they're not. And uh, you, now you can make, you can connect the dots if, if in some cases where you have to, have to decide, uh, well, seems to me they assumed you would understand this, so yeah, it's reasonable. But here, no, the, the versions exclude one another. Each tells too much that points in the opposite direction. And uh, this thing with uh, 1 Corinthians 15 versus Luke 24 is a prime example of that. Um, well, next we have uh, some long ones from Jason Quackenbush, and I uh, feel my throat getting a bit scratchy, so I think I'm going to call it quits there. Uh, let me once again uh, thank you for your interest in uh, my work and your financial support of it. Things remain kind of tight, very tight uh, for us around here, and uh, any help you can give us is is very, very appreciated. But if you can't or you just don't want to, you keep listening and sending questions either way. So thanks for being with us on the uh, Bible Geek today and see you soon.